Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 13, Into the Abyss, Part 1 of 2. So we finally arrived at the big show, the event which would slip through the fingers of European statesmen and result in the First World War being unleashed, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the July Crisis of 1914. To tackle this momentous event, I've decided to divide our discussion into two parts. This week, for part one, we'll look at the July crisis from the perspective of the continental powers, so France, Austria-Hungary, Germany, Russia, and Serbia. We'll begin with Ferdinand's assassination and end off with the German invasion of Belgium on August the 4th, which, believe me, will be more than enough content for one episode. Part two, unfortunately, will have to wait until October 23rd, I will explain why later, but it will take a much different approach. That episode will focus largely on Britain's decision to go to war. So I'm not going to talk about Britain a whole lot this week, because their situation was quite different from anyone else's, and I want a fresh episode before trying to unpack what was going on there. But I'll also dedicate a large part of the next episode to offer a summary assessment of the July crisis, and attempt to answer some of the nagging historical questions surrounding those events. So this week will be more of a rundown of the facts, while next week will be the critical analysis. That way, we all have a decent framework in our heads to help put it all into context later. I'll say a few more words about this at the end of the episode, but I'll leave it there for now. So, Franz Ferdinand, we're talking about the dude, not the rock band, was born in the beautiful city of Graz, Austria in 1863. The nephew of the now 88-year-old Emperor Franz Joseph, Ferdinand became heir apparent after the suicide of Joseph's son, the Crown Prince Rudolf, in 1896. The relationship between Joseph and Ferdinand has received considerable attention from historians, but the general consensus is that the two men rarely saw eye to eye. A major contributing factor to this rift was Ferdinand's marriage. In 1894, the Archduke married Sophia Chotek, a Czech countess whom Joseph considered beneath the statue of a Habsburg heir. The aging emperor viewed the marriage with contempt, and was the resurrecting elephant in the room during royal assemblies. Despite their strenuous relationship, Ferdinand had managed to establish himself on his own merit, and was a capable leader in his own right. To the ultra-conservative circles, led by the emperor, the chief of staff Konrad von Hutzendorf, and the foreign minister Leopold von Berchtold, Ferdinand represented a dangerous break from the orthodox sentiments of the empire. He was a forward thinker, and following the 1909 crisis over Bosnia-Herzegovina, the Archduke adopted a more liberal view than many of his contemporaries. As a bit of Shakespearean foreshadowing, it was Ferdinand's view of the Slavs, notably the Bosnians and Serbs, which caused him the most trouble in Vienna. But to his credit, the Archduke shared no illusions about the laundry list of foreign and domestic issues afflicting the empire. Domestically, the straight treasury was broke, its economy and workforce remained largely rural, and despite a few locations close to their German border, there was little industry to speak of. But the largest foreign threat remained the Slavs, and following their success in the Balkan Wars, their presence became all the more menacing. While Joseph, Hutzendorf, and Berchtold believed in crushing the Slavs with an iron fist, Ferdinand argued for a policy of reconciliation. He understood that Joseph was no longer a young man, and when the emperor finally croaked, all the problems facing the empire would fall to him. Ferdinand wanted to usher in a new era, and continually toyed with the idea of raising the Slavs to equal partners in the empire, similar to the arrangement with the Hungarians, effectively turning the dual monarchy into a triad. This notion did not go over well with the conservatives, and Hutzendorf especially no doubt gave Ferdinand his fair share of private one-finger salutes. For our purposes, 
1913 was a significant year for Ferdinand, because that was when he became overseer of the imperial army. His new position left him responsible for all army maneuvers, and whose authority regarding military concerns was second to only the emperor himself. Technically, he could overrule Hutzendorf if he felt inclined to do so. It was this position which would bring the Archduke to Bosnia in the summer of 1914, as the army's yearly maneuvers were scheduled to take place in the mountains outside the capital city of Sarajevo. What makes Ferdinand's encounter with Gavrilo Princip all the more unfortunate was that it was totally coincidental. Gavrilo Princip was a member of a group known as the Young Bosnians, a ragtag nationalist group dedicated to uniting all Slavic people and expelling the presence of the Habsburgs and Ottomans. The news of Ferdinand's tour of Bosnia was well publicized, and it was paid particular attention to in Serbia. Now, there was still a debate over how much the Serbs knew of the plot to assassinate the Archduke, but recent scholarship has made a few things clear. The first being that the Serbian government, despite claims to the contrary, did have a history of complacency towards terrorist activity, in either arming or sheltering operatives in Belgrade. While the other was the Black Hand, who not only supported the young Bosnians, but enjoyed a sense of credibility in the highest levels of Serbian society. In fact, the founding member of the Black Hand, Colonel Dragutin Demetrovic, we'll just pretend I pronounced that correctly, was head of Serbian intelligence, and had the close ear of the Serbian king, Peter Karagorovic. Now I want to stop and make a correction from before. I noticed that back in episode 9, I referred to the Serbian king as Alexander Karagorovic, but I must have gotten my Serbian monarchs confused. Alexander was murdered in a coup in 1903, which allowed Peter to take the throne soon after. So since 1903, it has been Peter, not Alexander, on the throne of Serbia. Sorry about any confusion that may have caused. But getting back to the story, whoever knew what of the plot will probably never be conclusive. But in my own analysis, I do subscribe that Belgrade was in on the deal. And although the plan to whack the Archduke may not have been born there, there is enough evidence to convict Belgrade of negligible complacency at the very least. To the Slav nationalists, Fernhand's visit fell on the most inappropriate of times. The 1909 annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina was still fresh in their minds, and although Ferdinand's policy of reconciliation might seem like a nice idea, the Slavs considered it just another attempt by the Austrians to destroy their dream of sovereignty in the Balkans. But there was another sour point which coincided with Ferdinand's visit. The Archduke's arrival in Sarajevo on June the 28th marked the anniversary of one of the most revered dates in Slav history. It marked the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, in which Serbian forces were defeated by the Ottomans back in 1389. By 1914, the date was still seen as the moment when the Slavs found themselves under the boot heels of a foreign oppressor, so it does not take a great imaginative mind to figure out why some would view Ferdinand's visit as an insult. Although the Archduke had been warned about the sensitivity of the date, he nevertheless believed it was important for the future emperor to show his resilience in the face of such a threat. Now, I already went over the events of June the 28th back in our very first episode, so I'll just say a few words about it here. The assassination of Ferdinand was improvised, and not a carefully orchestrated operation as it is so often depicted. The first attempt was a failure, when a bomb intended for the Archduke exploded beneath a second car, injuring a few members of the entourage. Despite the embarrassment of Sarajevo security forces and the anger of Ferdinand, the procession was allowed to continue. The fateful moment came when the driver of Ferdinand's vehicle turned down the wrong street. Gavrilo Princip, who had seen the first attempt go weary, was making his way from the scene, and by pure coincidence, found himself just meters of the Archduke's vehicle as it attempted to turn around. Seizing on the opportunity, Princip drew his pistol and fired. Sophie, who was accompanying the Archduke, was hit in the abdomen, while Ferdinand was struck in the jugular. 
Both were dead within minutes. No one could have predicted that such a random meeting in Sarajevo would touch off the most horrific conflict Europe had ever seen. Initial reaction around the continent was one of quiet surprise and sympathy, but nowhere did it result in an outpouring of support or national days of mourning. Assassinations were nothing new to Europe, especially in the cutthroat world of Balkan power politics, and no one felt they should alert their ambassadors and foreign ministers of an oncoming crisis. But despite what London, Berlin, Paris, or St. Petersburg felt, it was the reaction of Vienna which really mattered. Upon hearing the news of his nephew's death, the aging Franz Joseph was upset, but based on their strained relationship did not exactly fall into reclusive trauma. However, the chief of staff, Konrad van Hutzendorf, was ecstatic. Not only was one of the few voices who argued for restraint removed from the equation, but the general, who had argued for war against the Serbs since 1908, finally had a viable pretext. It was immediately suspected that the Serbs were the guilty party. Their long-standing animosity stemming from Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Balkan Wars was more than enough proof of their involvement. Hutzendorf famously remarked that the time had come to crush the Serbian viper, and unfortunately, there were not enough people in Vienna willing to oppose this. But before any decisions were made, the Austrian leadership wanted to make sure they had the support of their German ally. On July the 5th, just a week after the assassination, the Austrian ambassador met privately with the Kaiser in Berlin. During their discussion, Wilhelm made the pledge to support Austria in what has gone down in history as the infamous blank check, in which Germany pledged to assist Austria in their retaliation against Serbia. The German motive for supporting Austria has received a lot of attention, and if you are a subscriber to Fischer's Blame Germany theory, it represents further proof that the Germans were acting on their plan to orchestrate a continental war. Now, as we talked about last episode, I don't subscribe to Fischer's theory. One of the reasons is that it reduces the role of Austria-Hungary into a mere German puppet. It fails to consider that Austria-Hungary was acting on its own accord, and in response to a threat which was unique to its own standing. The South Slavs did not pose a direct threat to Germany, and since their alliance in 1879, the two states rarely acted in concert on anything. As we saw during Morocco and Bosnia-Herzegovina, there was no unifying policy which dictated how the two partners should act. Most significantly, the Germans did not have a clear idea how the Austrians would respond, but their advice was that they should act quickly, before European sympathy for the Habsburgs began to waver. Once German support had been guaranteed, statesmen in Vienna began to debate over what to do next. Hutzendorf and the Foreign Minister Birchtold were adamant that a military response was necessary, and few were in disagreement. They wanted to ensure that any doubt of Serbian involvement would be squashed. While the Hawks in Vienna believed that they already had a pretext for war, the Hungarian representatives were more cautious. The Hungarians shared the same concern as the Austrians did, as the majority of Slavs living within the empire resided within Hungarian borders. But critically, they believed that more grounds were needed to justify a military response. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Istvan Tissa, advised that the Serbs must be made to look guilty through diplomatic overtures first. In other words, the dual monarchy must not appear to be the aggressor. The agreed-upon solution, of course, was the drafting of an ultimatum which Serbia would have no option but to refuse. A rejection of the document would give Austria-Hungary proof they needed that war was necessary. Outside of Vienna, Europe twiddled its thumbs and waited for the Austrian response. From July 7th to the 23rd, there was a near blackout of all information coming out of the Austrian capital. Although the Germans were aware of the nature of the document, none of the states had clear knowledge of its specific clauses. Now, it is interesting to note that in the wake of Ferdinand's death, the general consensus in Europe was that by the laws of diplomacy, Austria reserved the right to impose some form of payback against the Serbs. 
But outside of Berlin and Vienna, this was expected to come in the form of economic sanctions, territorial acquirements, or hefty indemnity. Few thought that Austria would use the assassination as an excuse for war. But as the days and then weeks passed, sympathy on behalf of the Russians, British, and French began to waver, as they grew concerned that the Austrians were up to something suspicious. On July 23, 1914, the Entente fears would be confirmed. Copies of the Austrian ultimatum were delivered to foreign offices throughout Europe and were received with disbelief. At its most basic core, the document was a direct attack on the sovereignty of Serbia. A total of 10 clauses, which outlined that Serbia must admit the plan to assassinate Ferdinand was hatched in Belgrade, that all publications, including newspapers and school textbooks critical of Austria-Hungary, be suppressed, and any official, school teacher, or military officer suspected of anti-Habsburg activity be dismissed from their posts. But the sticking point was clause number 6, demanding that Serbia allow unrestricted access for an official inquiry into the plot which included turning over all government and police documents, essentially giving Vienna direct control of the Serbian court system. Despite fully knowing that Serbia would reject this, they had 48 hours to respond. Reaction to the ultimatum was of immediate concern. In July 23rd is, in my opinion, the true beginning of the July crisis, as it marks the point when the Entente nations became involved. Right off the bat, the British, French, and Russians all agreed there was no way Serbia could accept the terms and Sir Edward Grey immediately began to pressure for an extension of the deadline. But Vienna, with German support, refused to budge from their position. Men like Hutzendorf and Birchtold were adamant that they could not back down from their demands because it would suggest that they were not serious about retribution against Serbia. They had spent nearly three weeks designing the thing, and the timing of it was so carefully orchestrated that dropping just one clause would be like stripping Austria of its national honor. Now I say the timing was carefully orchestrated because the original release date of the ultimatum was July the 18th. But at the very last minute, Birchtold remembered that Raymond Poincaré, the president of France, was on a state visit to Russia from the 18th to the 23rd. Birchtold felt that depriving Russia, Serbia's most powerful ally, the opportunity to coordinate with France would be to Vienna's benefit, and he was most certainly right about that. Except there was one grave miscalculation. During his visit, Poincaré had reassured Tsar Nicholas that if Russia were to get sucked into another dispute involving Austria or Germany, then France was ready to stand by their military commitments of 1894. Fantastic news, because Russia now had assurances that it would not have to face its westward rivals alone, as it had back in 1909. Things would be much different this time around. So with Poincaré back at sea, Vienna released the ultimatum hoping to deprive the Entente of a key military partner. Sergei Zazanov, upon reading the terms for the first time, accused Vienna of setting Europe ablaze, and he immediately traveled to Belgrade to advise the Serbian Prime Minister, Nikolai Pasic, to call for a meeting of the concert to moderate the dispute. But the Serbs, to their credit, understood better than anyone that Austria was not looking for a diplomatic solution. They saw two options. They could either accept all the terms, which would be an end of a sovereign Serbia, something which Russia would not accept, or they could gear up and go toe-to-toe with Vienna. The second option suited the Serbs just fine. Their army was battle-hardened from the Balkan Wars, and the ultimatum was a clear sign that Austria-Hungary was determined to pound them out of existence. So, it would be an easy sell to the public, at least. But despite the options laid before them, the Serbs were not going to be goaded into a war. Like the Austrians after Sarajevo, they were going to appear to be as accommodating as they could, given the circumstances. On July 25th, just hours before the deadline expired, the Serbs gave their response and accepted all the terms with the exception of two. One, which called for an Austrian investigation into the plot, and the other demanding that Belgrade accept responsibility for the assassination. 
As a compromise, the Serbs proposed that they would hand over any documents, material, or persons which the Austrians requested, but would not allow Austrian investigators to go digging through their archives. But that was all the Austrians needed. For Berchtold and Hutzendorf, the ultimatum was not something up for negotiation. In their minds, the Serbs had rejected the deal, and the Austrian army began to mobilize. On July 28, 1914, the opening shots of the First World War began, as Austrian artillery north of the Sava River began to rain down on Belgrade. In London, Sir Edward Grey immediately called for a halt in Belgrade, in which the Austrian army should cease hostilities once the capital had been occupied. But diplomatic channels were beginning to break down throughout Europe. Following the Austrian declaration of war, communications between Serbia and Austria were severed, which meant that mediation efforts had to come through their respective allies. On that same day, Tsar Nicholas II, who of all the state leaders opposed military action the most, reluctantly gave the order to begin partial mobilization of his military districts. The Russians were hoping that through partial mobilization, they could scare Vienna into calling off their assault on Belgrade. It was this decision which prompted Germany to take the next step. From July 30th onward, things happened at a heightened pace. With Germany now issuing threats against Russia to stand down, Tsar Nicholas gave the order for full mobilization. Despite a torrent of telegraphs from Berlin warning St. Petersburg that any act against Austria would be seen as an attack on Germany, the Russians understood that backing down now would be just another repeat of 1909. The memories of their humiliation at the hands of Japan and their abandonment of Serbia in the previous Bosnian dispute acted as a strong deterrent to walk down that path again. To the foreign ministry, a destroyed Serbia at the hands of Austria, Hungary, and Germany would reduce Russian influence in the Balkans to a mere formality. Unlike 1909, and to the miscalculation of both Austria, Hungary, and Germany, Russia was not going to back down as they had previously hoped. Poincaré's pledge of military support resulted in the Russians having an extra jump to their step, and when it became clear that things were starting to spiral out of hand, the German military machine began to click into gear. Now, if you are listening to this podcast, you are probably already familiar with the Schlieffen Plan. You know, the German war plan with all the big arrows. But if you are hearing of this for the first time, I'll cover it briefly to get us all up to speed. The brainchild behind the strategy was Alfred von Schlieffen, who from 1891 to 1906 served as chief of the German Imperial Army. Schlieffen was a by-the-book soldier, and following his appointment he immediately began to tinker with plans to prepare Germany in case it found itself in a general war. Sometime in 1905 or 1906, we're not sure exactly when, Schlieffen devised a plan for a single-front war against the French. The general idea was to attack France in the northwest via Belgium, wheel south, and envelop the French army behind Paris, effectively destroying France's primary threat against Germany before they had any chance to counterattack. For such an ambitious plan to work, it required that German mobilization run like a well-oiled machine, where speed and maneuverability were the buzzwords of the day. Soldiers would need to report to their units within a specific time frame, while the vast network of railways would have to be reroute to not only transport troops from across the country, but also pick up equipment, supplies, and generally anything you can imagine a mobile army would need to be successful in the field. So it goes without saying that no one was envious of the dude responsible for getting all this organized. Then, once all that had been completed, the army would need to mass along the Belgian frontier, pour through the country without incident, and then be ready to destroy the French army within six weeks. Schlieffen had designed this plan with such logistical detail that once the order for mobilization was given, it could not, in theory anyway, be rescinded. Once the machine got going, it was incredibly difficult to stop, as the longer it took to mobilize, the longer Germany's enemies had to strike first. English historian A.G.P. Taylor famously coined this development as war by timetable, and argued that the ability to quickly mobilize was just as important as winning on the battlefield, 
and German war planning was the best example of this practice. But it's important to keep in mind that although Germany would follow Schlieffen's plan for the most part, 1914 Germany was quite different than 1906 Germany. Schlieffen had retired that year, and was replaced by Helmuth von Moltke the Younger. We call him Moltke the Younger to distinguish him from his uncle, the elder Moltke who held the same post from 1857 to 1888, and remains one of the more revered generals in modern history. Unfortunately for Europe, the younger Moltke was not the same caliber of general as Schlieffen. He lacked the calculating mind which made his predecessor such a natural fit for the position. The younger Moltke took over following Schlieffen's retirement in 1906, because he was a favorite of the Kaiser and not because of his military prowess. But there was one more important difference between Schlieffen and Moltke's day, and that was the Russian Colossus in the East. By 1914, Russia had largely rebounded from its humiliations in 1905 and 1909, which was something Schlieffen had not accounted for in his original plan. So Moltke inherited not only Schlieffen's philosophy of speed and maneuverability, but he was also facing a resurgent Russia, which was feared could simply steamroll any opposition through sheer numerical force. So with France and Russia now posing as viable threats, meant that the German doctrine of quick mobilization and preemptive strike was now more crucial than ever. France would still need to be destroyed first, regardless of whether it was hostile to Germany or not, because the combined weight of France and a fully mobilized Russia would simply be too much for Germany and Austria-Hungary to handle on their own. So in context of the July crisis, the longer Russia had to mobilize meant the window for Germany to survive was closing with each hour. This was the prevailing thought of the Kaiser and the Chiefs of Staff when on August 1st, 1914, Germany declared war on Russia. In Paris, Poincaré, holding true to his word, ordered French forces to begin mobilization. Any hope Berlin had of the French getting cold feet at the last minute flew out the window. Russia and France, the key rivals of Germany, were mobilizing against her, and if it had any hope of surviving a two-front conflict, it could not wait any longer. On August 2nd, the German Foreign Minister Gottlieb von Jakau did a polite thing and issued an ultimatum to Belgium, fully expecting that they would allow German troops to march through their country without opposition. The Belgians, of course, would refuse, something which neither Schlieffen nor Moltke had considered in their planning. Belgian resistance would slow the German advance considerably, giving French forces more time to complete mobilization. Hours after the ultimatum was issued, German troops occupied Luxembourg to prepare their advance into Belgium. On August the 3rd, the Italians wised up to what was going on, and instead of getting dragged into a conflict on behalf of the hated Austrians, politely asked to remain on the sidelines until they were ready to commit. They were later joined in 1915, but on the side of the Entente. With the Italians now committed to neutrality for the time being, Berlin took the final step and declared war on France. The following day, August the 4th, German troops crossed the Belgian frontier, and the rest is history. Ironically, the final two nations to declare war were Austria and Russia, who would continue to negotiate until August the 6th. So that is a general rundown from the assassination of Ferdinand to the outbreak of the First World War. But as I said at the start of the episode, we are not quite out of the woods yet. Next time, we'll turn our attention to what the British were up to, which will also serve to help round out some of the rough edges and fill in the important gaps. After that, we'll then look at an analysis of these events and dig into why the crisis of 1914 proved to be too much for the concert to contain. Now the reason for part 2 being put out on the 23rd as opposed to the 13th is because at the last minute, I realized that October 13th is Thanksgiving Monday for us up here in Canada, so I'll be taking that weekend off. But I'll also be in and out of town beginning on October the 9th, which means I'll not have enough time to make an episode I can feel confident about. 
But as a compromise, I thought it would be fun to open the analysis section of part 2 to any of you listeners out there who might have any burning questions about the July crisis, the assassination of Ferdinand, or anything we have talked about up to this point. That way, you'll have some extra time to get your questions in. So if there's anything you want addressed, leave a comment at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you will find additional Twitter and email information if you decide you don't want to use the comment section, because for some reason you do need to be logged onto Facebook, and I have yet to figure a way around that. So I'll pick up again on the 23rd with Great Britain, in a nice summary assessment of the final months of peace in Europe. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly. <laughs>